0: Father, as we reenacted some portion of your story this morning, we pray that you would help us continue to enter in this day and this week into these uh, saving events, these things that took place in history right at the center of the world that have provided our salvation and our deliverance. So would you open our minds, our eyes, our hearts, and our ears that we might see you and know you this morning. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we enter into this remembrance of the most important week, of the most important man who ever lived, to quote the subtitle of a recent book. We began our service with this reenactment of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. As he rode into the city. People waved palm branches, a sign of kingship. But it was a paradoxical day. Because on the one hand, the celebration of Jesus as king was right on. Because he was king. But on the other hand, the expectation of his kingship was completely off the mark. And we see this strange contrast between the crowds cheering and celebrating Him. But Jesus, if you remember, according to one of the Gospel writers, He stops and He weeps over Jerusalem as He pronounces God's coming judgment on the city. No one, not even His closest friends and disciples, foresaw what would happen during that week. No one expected that Jesus would willingly embrace His own suffering and His own death in order to bring in God's kingdom. well, Holy Week culminates in Jesus' death and resurrection, which we will gladly celebrate next weekend. But a lot happened during the week leading up to those events. The infamous cleansing of the temple, when Jesus turned over tables, that took place during Holy Week. Some of Jesus' most confrontational teaching also took place during that week in the courts of the temple. Jesus taught on paying taxes to Caesar. He argued about the resurrection with the Sadducees. He taught the great commandment to love God and neighbor. He spoke about the end times. It was a monumental week, to say the least. Full of crowds, thronging to the city in this time of Passover, full of powerful teaching from Jesus and increasing opposition and hatred. But on Thursday of that week, in a large upper room somewhere in uptown Jerusalem, away from the public eye, Jesus shared this intimate meal with His disciples. And although they didn't realize it at the time, the meal that they shared was the most important meal that has ever taken place in the history of the world. And So this morning, in order to help us enter into the celebration of Holy Week, I want to take a deeper look at the Last Supper. All four Gospels provide their own account of what happened on that evening. We're going to look at Luke's account. Luke was not an eyewitness, but he's an excellent historian, probably interviewed eyewitnesses. He's often the most detailed. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Luke chapter 22. The first thing we notice is how incredibly important this meal was to Jesus. And that's really what I want you to see today. He put a very high priority on this dinner. In verse 7 and following, Luke 22, we read that when the Passover arrived, Jesus sent Peter and John into the city to prepare the meal. What he tells them in verse 10 is that when they enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water is going to meet them and then lead them to the house. And then they're to say some specific words to the master of this house who will have this upper room that they can use to make the preparations for the Passover meal. So here we see Jesus, the secret agent. Apparently, he had prearranged with this contact in the city where this meal was to take place, and then he established this cryptic sign of the man carrying the water jar. Usually it was a woman carrying the water. Why did he do all this? Because he wanted the meal to be private. You see, if the crowds got word that Jesus was in the city eating the Passover meal, they would press in. It had happened before in Capernaum. If the authorities got word, they might try to stop the meal and arrest Jesus One scholar even suggested that Jesus' kind of bizarre instructions around the meal to Peter and John was actually to keep Judas out of the loop. Because Judas by this time was looking for this opportunity to betray him and what better place to do than this quiet upper room out of the public eye where the authorities could grab him and no one would see it and begin to riot. So Jesus himself crafted this plan so that the meal would not be disturbed to be arrested later in the garden while he was praying. That was okay in his sovereign plan. But Jesus, who seems to be in control of his own fate, and we see that as we read the gospel accounts, he would not allow this meal to be interrupted because it was too important to him and to the church that he would later establish. In verses 15, 14 and 15, we read this. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired, earnestly desired, remember those words, to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So we have his careful preparations, his cryptic signs, but now from his own lips we hear it. He earnestly desires to eat this meal. He's been looking forward to it. It's been his focus. He's arranged all the details. He's protected it from intruders because he's yearning to be with his friends around this table on this night for this sacred meal. The question I want to ask today is why? Why was this meal so important to Jesus? Why did he deeply desire to share it with his disciples? Well, I think we can begin to understand Jesus' heart as we understand the meal and what it meant. And so I want us to look at the Last Supper through three different sets of lenses or pairs of glasses. Each one gives us a different perspective on the meal and helps us understand its importance to Jesus. So first is the lens of deliverance. Deliverance. Jesus shared a lot of meals with his disciples. Luke shows us this. And each time it was an intimate, it was a sacred encounter, something uh, meaningful was happening. But the Last Supper wasn't just an ordinary meal. It was celebrated in the context of the Jewish feast of Passover. Many scholars suggest that the dinner that evening may have followed the format of a Jewish Seder with the multiple cups of wine, the bitter herbs, the roasted lamb, But regardless of the exact details, it was clearly in the context of Passover, which at this point uh, was not just one meal eaten in haste, as we read about in Exodus, but it become this week-long celebration in Jerusalem. During Passover, Jews from all over the world would come to Jerusalem, they would fill the city, and they would celebrate how God had delivered them from the oppression of Egypt. It's hard to get our minds around what Passover meant to a Jewish person at that time. It was the definitive act of God that shaped their own self-understanding, shaped their idea of salvation, shaped their understanding of God. Take our Declaration of Independence and our July 4th celebration and then put it on steroids and multiply it times 100 and you'll begin to get the sense of how passionately these Jews valued their freedom and how they celebrated what God had done in Egypt to give them that freedom. The actual word Passover refers to the last plague that came on Egypt, the death of the firstborn. The Jews were delivered from the plague, as we heard read, by putting the blood of a lamb on their doorways. And when the angel of death came through the land, he would pass over their homes and not strike them down. So God would bring judgment. He didn't suspend his judgment. That's important for us to see. Judgment came, and it came in the form of death, but his people would be spared. Why? That's the key question. Why would they be spared? Had they acted righteously? No, that wasn't it. Maybe they had, but that wasn't the reason. Was it because they were religious that they followed all the rituals in just the right way? And God said, okay, you're very religious. I will spare you. No, that wasn't the reason either. Was it because of Moses? Because he was a good leader. He had interceded for them, right? Was it because of him that God said, I will spare you? That wasn't the reason either. Why were they spared? Because a lamb had been sacrificed and they had been marked with its blood. Hold on to that. So this is the context, Passover, the meal that Jesus shares with his disciples. And I think at one level, because he's a faithful Jew, Jesus just looked forward to celebrating the Passover every year. But this year, something was different. Notice in verse 15, when he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. Not any Passover. This Passover on this particular evening, it's the Passover before he suffers. And he goes on to say in verse 16 that it's the last one that he'll eat, that he'll celebrate during his time on earth. Well, if we were there and we were one of the disciples and we were a Jewish person, the meal would have started in a regular fashion. We would have probably recognized the the liturgy that they were following. and Oh yes, I've been doing that since I was a little girl, a little boy. But as things progressed, Jesus would begin to say and do some things that were not only bizarre, but downright blasphemous. He began to talk about his own body being sacrificed and his own blood being shed to create this covenant, a new covenant. Clearly something was different. We don't know the menu that evening. We don't know uh, whether they really did have roasted lamb, if it followed that traditional Seder meal or not. But we do know that there was a lamb present. Back in verse 7, Luke gives us this clue. He says, Then came the day of the unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Luke, not so subtly, is saying, Jesus is this Passover lamb. Don't miss this. That was clearly Jesus' own understanding. It wouldn't make sense otherwise. That's why he spoke of his own body and his own blood being given to establish this covenant. And later in the New Testament, Paul will pick up on this, 1 Corinthians 5, when he says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. So why was this so important to Jesus? Why did he long to celebrate it? Because he knew what it meant. He knew what it was pointing to all along. Over the next three days, Jesus would fulfill all that Passover had pointed forwards. He would become the lamb that was slaughtered. He would shed his own blood. Jesus, God's firstborn, would not be spared judgment so that many others would. And so now we are just like our forefathers who came out of Egypt. Are we delivered by our own righteousness or because we are good people and we're trying to live decent lives? No, that is not why we are delivered. We are delivered in the same manner because a lamb has been sacrificed and we have been marked by his blood. That's the only way out of judgment and death. We live by participating in the death of Jesus. And so Jesus longed to celebrate this meal because he would bring it to fulfillment over the next few days. He would bring the real, the lasting freedom that the people had always longed for, not from political oppression, not right away anyway, but from evil, from sin, and from death. The true oppressors, the true enemies of humankind. Our second lens on this meal is hope for the future. Hope for the future. For the Jews, the celebration of Passover, it looked back on God's deliverance in the past. But it also looked forward into when he would uh, deliver them again. And particularly for them, it was this political freedom that they longed for. They had been plagued over the centuries by so much political oppression, being under all these different rulers. And at the current time of Jesus, they were under Rome, of course. They were also under corrupt Jewish leadership. They wanted to be delivered. And so at Passover, this hope for freedom reached this feverish pitch. That's why the crowds celebrated Jesus with palm branches. They were crying out. They thought that he was the one who, with military, political might, would deliver them from Rome. Well, this hope for the future, Jesus picks up on it. And it's right in the middle of the Last Supper. During the supper, he shared a cup of wine with his disciples. And he said these words, verse 18. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then later in verse 30. Jesus says he's going to assign them a kingdom that they may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. So we call this the Last Supper. But Jesus seems to think it's the first supper. Throughout the meal, he has this forward-looking, hopeful perspective. Now, he acknowledges that some things are going to change. He acknowledges that he's going to suffer. He he acknowledges he's not going to be eating and drinking with them like he had or, or going up to the festival with them in Jerusalem. But it's not the end of the feasting together. Thanks be to God. Because he points them forward. To another table in another place in his own kingdom when they will eat together again. It is Luke who is the most fond of talking about meals. and Meals in the Middle Eastern context today and certainly back then were a huge affair. They spoke volumes about your intimacy. And so Luke will talk about meals with Jesus as a way to talk about God's kingdom. And so earlier in Luke, we read about how he dined with tax collectors and sinners. And why does Luke tell us this? Because it's a teaching about how the kingdom of God is coming into the world. And who are the people who are entering into it. But here in chapter 22, this meal on this night is saying, this isn't the end. It's just the beginning. God's kingdom is still coming. The real feast is yet to come. This is just a foretaste. Again, later, Paul will pick up on this, 1 Corinthians 11. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Proclaim the Lord's death, that's the deliverance part, until he comes. That's the hope for the future. This isn't the end, friends. Jesus' kingdom has already broken into the world. It is currently breaking into the world, but one day it will fully come. It will displace all the other kingdoms, all the other governments, all the other candidates, thanks be to God, and Jesus will feast with his people in unbroken fellowship. That's why it's no surprise when we get to the last book of the Bible, towards the end of that book, Revelation chapter 19, we read this. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see, every time Christians remember the last supper through communion, it's actually a foretaste of this marriage feast that we will have at the end of time. And so that's why I think another reason Jesus longs to eat this meal with his disciples, not because it's the last supper, but because it's the first supper of the new covenant. Our third and final lens is presence. Specifically, Jesus' presence with his disciples. Now, it's easy to let these huge ideas of deliverance and hope, a lot of theology going on there, it's easy to let those overshadow the simple truth that Jesus longs to share the meal because he loves his disciples. In the most simple way, he, he just wants to be with them. In his human nature, we, we can imagine that he longs for their comfort before he suffers. Wouldn't you want to be together with your loved ones before you face the greatest trial of your life? So he wants to be with his friends. He wants to be in their presence. But the first two lenses that we consider, deliverance and hope, what are those really about theologically? Scripturally. They're about presence. They're about God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being present to those whom He loves. That's what we're delivered for. It's what the people of God were delivered for in the Old Testament. That they might come into their own land and and be with God. That's what we're delivered for. That's our hope for the future is that we might dwell with God forever. It's all about presence, friends. The apostles that evening in uptown Jerusalem... They got to be in the presence of Jesus in this very intimate way. And I don't know if you've ever imagined yourself and said, wow, what would that have been like to sit at that table, to hear Jesus speak these words, to break this bread, to wash your feet? We might envy them. But during that meal, Jesus did something absolutely brilliant. He instituted that the meal should continue to be celebrated. It was a repeatable event. And he did this in such a way that every disciple in every place would be able to share this meal with him and enjoy his presence. That's why it's the most important meal of the history of the world. It's repeatable by design. At the end of the book of Matthew, Jesus says, And behold, I am with you, presence, to the end of the age. It's a wonderful promise. It's a promise that disciples hold on to, especially in dark times. Jesus is with us, always. But how is he going to fulfill that promise? Well, in at least three ways. He fulfills it by giving us of his spirit to live in us, teach us, guide us, purify us, comfort us. He fulfills it through the Bible, by giving us Jesus' words. Inspired by the Spirit, written down faithfully, accurately by His followers, we have the words of Jesus. And through, through His Word, through His Spirit, Jesus continues His presence with us. And I think that's pretty clear to most Christians. But there's a third one that we often overlook or downplay. Jesus is going to be with us, through the repetition of this meal that he instituted on the evening before his suffering and death. He longed to share the meal with his first disciple. He still longs to share it with us. And so we have his words, that promise, I will always be with you through his spirit, through his words, and finally, through this meal. Let me say a little bit more about the presence of Jesus in the meal. How does that work? how do we experience it? Well, first we know from the text that we eat the meal in remembrance of him. Those were his instructions. Luke 22, verse 19, do this in remembrance of me. It's a command, it's not a suggestion. It has the same force and weight as other commands, like love your neighbor, make disciples, forgive one another. But what does remembrance mean? I think it's more than an exercise Mentally, thing we do like memorizing the multiplication tables. We're not likely to forget the fact that Jesus died for us. Our problem is remembering it in our daily lives. To actually allow the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus to impact our stories. And better yet, to enter into his story. And so I think it's better to understand remembrance like rehearsing. That's very much what they were doing in the Passover meal. So we're picking up on that. They're rehearsing the story. When an actress is playing a a stage role or a film role, what does she do? She rehearses over and over. Not just so that she remembers the line, but so that the character and the story get so deeply formed in her that she can express that character, that she can live out that story in every scene just on instinct. Just becomes a part of her. Rehearsing this Jesus meal week after week, year after year, that's our rehearsal, friends. Through it, the character and the story of Jesus is formed in us so deeply that we instinctively live it out in every scene of our lives. Do this in remembrance of me. Rehearse the story. That's the first way that we experience the presence of Jesus in the meal. No one really disagrees about that. We all Say, yes, we're supposed to remember Jesus through the meal. Those weren't his only words that night, were they? He spoke some others that have become the most controversial in the history of Christianity. This is my body which is given for you. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What did Jesus mean by those words? That is the $64 million question of church history. How do those words help us understand his presence in the meal? Well, there's three basic ways that we can interpret them or that Christians have done so over time. First, you have the the literal interpretation of Roman Catholicism in the doctrine of transubstantiation. They believe that Jesus literally meant that bread... Becomes his body. Wine becomes his blood during communion. Now, many Protestants uh, reject this out of hand. But it is helpful to know what you're rejecting. They had a certain understanding, philosophical assumptions in the Middle Ages that sort of supported this idea of transubstantiation. We don't understand that as well today. And so we're like, what? We don't don't get this. But back then, many people believed that physical objects had two aspects. They had their outward physical traits, their, their cupness or whatever. But then they had this this inward true substance. And that's the word they used. They used this word substance not to refer to the physical traits, that's how we would talk about it, but to the sort of inner reality of the cup. And so what they believed happened in communion was that the inward traits of bread and wine, the true substance in their use, actually became Christ's body and blood, but while maintaining outwardly the physical traits of bread and wine. Clear as mud. Let's move on. The second interpretation uh, we could call symbol only interpretation. And I would say that's the the dominant position of Protestants today. Maybe what you grew up with. Interestingly enough, it's not what Luther or Calvin, the two greatest reformers, held, but it is what we find in many Bible believing, evangelical, Protestant type churches. This interpretation believes that Jesus meant the bread and wine only as a symbol. When he said, this is my body, he meant this is like my body. And so the symbols are great. They can remind us of Jesus. They can point to his saving death, but that's it. They're not a vehicle for anything. They don't transfer any grace. They're just sort of a reminder tool. The third interpretation is what I'll call the Jesus shows up interpretation. And there are some variations on it. But basically, this interpretation says that Jesus really shows up through the bread and the wine. So that we can experience his presence in a way that we don't without the meal. Luther had his version that sort of Jesus came down. He was present with the bread and the wine. Calvin said, no, I think it's more that we go up into heaven and we feast on Jesus there. And then Cranmer, the Anglican, he asserted that two things were true. Uh, bread and wine remained bread and wine. But we also really fed on Christ during communion. How those work together? Cramer never defined, and so Anglicans like to claim it's a mystery. We don't know. We don't need to know. As C.S. Lewis, another Anglican, reminds us, the command after all was take, eat, not take, understand. (laughs) So each of those interpretations are are trying to be faithful to Jesus' words. Nobody's throwing out Jesus' words and just making up their own thing. They're all trying to be faithful to what they believe Jesus meant. The literal interpretation, Roman Catholicism, I I think it did lead to some funny practices. And so on that grounds, we might criticize it, saying, I'm not sure that Jesus meant the the sacrament to be paraded around, to be upheld and adored, and, and some of those practices devotionally that happened over time. On the flip side, the symbolic interpretation for many Protestants, though not all, has led to its infrequent celebration. There seems to be this correlation between how present one believes Christ is in the meal and how often one celebrates it. I have come to believe personally, and I'm part of a tradition in Anglicanism that believes that Jesus really shows up in a special way in this meal. Well, sometimes I have to receive that on faith, because I might not sense anything or feel anything, but I trust that God's grace is at work in me and in our church through participation in the meal. But often I find I do experience something. My heart is lifted up, it's more joyful after partaking in the meal. And I don't think I'm alone in this. I see your faces when you come into church, I read your body language throughout the service, and then I see it at the end. And it's different, it's lifted. And maybe you're just relieved that the long sermon is over <laughs> or that the cookies are out and there's a cup of coffee waiting, but I think it's something more. There's this freedom, there's this joy that's infectious, that takes us over. There's a love shared after the service, and I don't think that's an accident. I think that's a result of encountering God throughout the service, certainly, through, through the songs and the prayers and, and the word. But I think particularly it has something to do with a grace, that's gotten into our souls through this mysterious act of taking bread and taking wine and praying over it and speaking words over it, and Jesus shows up. I can't explain it. It's not a cognitive thing. I don't think my way into, I should be joyful now. I just find that something is different. And it seems like it's true for you as well after we feast on Jesus. So friends, we all approach this meal in very different ways. It means something different to each of us. Sometimes that's because of our biblical or theological study. We've arrived at certain conclusions. More often, I think it's just a reflection of how we were raised, if we were raised in church. However we practice it in church, it comes to mean something to us, or possibly we're reacting against that because we didn't like that, and that's how we shape our opinion. But wherever we're coming from, my encouragement to you would be to approach this meal with the same level of longing that Jesus had. He couldn't wait to celebrate it. He yearned for it. He protected it. He commanded us to continue it. I think his intentions was to meet all disciples of all time through this meal on a regular basis. Because it's a gift. It's a gift of grace to us. We don't really need to understand it that well. We just need to receive it. I want to leave you with a verse from a hymn. If I didn't tell you who wrote the hymn, you might assume that it was somebody uh, who was Roman Catholic. But it's actually from the great evangelical hymn writer, Charles Wesley, who I think understood the sacred mystery of Jesus showing up in communion. Who shall say how bread and wine God into man convey? How the bread his flesh imparts, how the wine transmits his blood, fill his faithful people's hearts with all the life of God. Let's pray. Jesus, we are embodied creatures. You love material things, physical things. You love the world that you have made. And we thank you that you have chosen in your good plan to use physical things as a vehicle for your presence and your grace. We thank you for baptism. We thank you for communion. We thank you that you nourish us through this meal together. And however we understand it, however we grew up with it, we pray that this day and throughout this week that you would be present to us, encourage us, build us up in faith as we partake of your meal. We pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.